0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And this was a damn interesting week. so let's get started with our first link. First First link. link.
2: From the BBC News, in what is surely not at all auspicious, an almost 500-mile-long lightning bolt crossed three U.S. states recently. Wow. Okay. Not a sign of God's anger, but that being (laughs) said, the states were Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. Uh Uh-oh. The previous record for the longest flash was 440 miles, and that was recorded in Brazil in 2018. The reason this is pretty remarkable is that lightning rarely extends over 10 miles, and it usually lasts under a second. Mm -hmm. They set a new record for duration at 17.1 seconds, and the previous record was 16.7 seconds. So there's even a video if you want to see it. It's pretty remarkable. Professor Randall Cervani, the World Meteorological Organization's rapporteur of weather and climate extremes, said, these are extraordinary records from lightning flash events.
0: I mean, to be fair, Texas is like the width of three states. So like <laughs> it's almost like it went over four or five states, to be honest.
2: Well, it really just grazed the eastern end of Texas and mm. was mostly concentrated at the lower southern coast of Louisiana and Mississippi. But we can probably find greater extremes likely to exist and be recorded in the future. The rationale here is that we've got advances in space-based lightning detection technology. So Mm. we're gonna be able to like beat these records mostly just by picking up the stuff that's already been happening because now we have the equipment to do so. Right. Lightning specialists said in a WMO statement, These extremely large and long-duration lightning events were not isolated, but happened during active thunderstorms. Like you do, right? Mm -hmm. Right, you would
0: expect. (laughs) It'd be much scarier if it just happened for no reason. Yes,
2: yes. Or for reasons that maybe our trauma-informed brains go to for doomsday reasons. Like, (laughs) okay, here come the lightning flashes. It's okay, guys. They're coming with active thunderstorms we're already getting, and we've just got better tech now. Previously accepted WMO lightning extremes included a 1975 incident in which 21 people were killed by a single flash of lightning as they huddled inside a tent in Zimbabwe. Wow. In another incident, 469 people were killed when lightning struck the Egyptian town of Dronka, which caused burning oil to flood the town. That sounds apocalyptic. Yeah. The WMO does note that the only lightning-safe locations are, quote, substantial buildings with wiring and plumbing, rather than structures like bus stops or those found in beaches. Also considered reliably safe are fully enclosed metal-topped vehicles. So just as a reminder, anytime you hear thunder, get to a lightning-safe place. Right, right. (laughs) Don't get in the pool. Get
0: in Mm -mm. your
2: car. Get in your car or go to a substantial building with wiring and plumbing. I guess paradoxically, the secret is you want metal to be around, but not touching that metal.
1: yeah. And in case anybody doesn't know, don't stand under trees. It's actually better to be out in the middle of a field because the tree is taller, most likely.
2: (laughs) Most likely. (laughs) Next link?
1: Next Next link! link. In... Vaguely related news, uh, this <laughs> article comes to us from theconversation.com, and it's titled, Experts Suggest U.S. Embassies Were Hit With High Power Microwaves, Here's How the Weapons Work.
0: Ooh. Is this the Cuba thing where they keep uh-huh. saying, like, it? Yep. maybe we're getting raid zapped, yeah. but maybe we're not? Okay. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's conclusive
1: now? Uh, It's not conclusive, but we're finally coming around to actually talking about this in public as opposed to it just being, you know, tinfoil hat wearers on the internet going over it. So (laughs) now that the experts have agreed, we can finally admit that this technology may be real. So, some of the cases of the mystery ailment that has afflicted U.S. Embassy staff and CIA officers on and off since 2016 in Cuba, China, Russia, and other countries most likely were caused by pulsed electromagnetic energy, according to a report by a panel of experts convened by national intelligence agencies. The report's findings are similar to those of another report released by the National Academies in 2020. In that report, a committee of 19 experts in medicine and other fields concluded that directed pulsed radio frequency energy is the most plausible mechanism to explain the illness dubbed Havana Syndrome.
0: Yikes.
1: Neither report is definitive, and their authors don't address who targeted the embassies or why they were targeted. But the technology <laughs> behind the suspected weapons is well understood and dates back to the Cold War arms race between the US and the Soviet Union. High-power microwave weapons are generally designed to disable electronic equipment. Two good examples of this are Boeing's Counter-Electronics High-Powered Microwave Advanced Missile Project, or CHAMP, (laughs) and Tactical High-Power Operational Responder, or THOR, which was recently developed by the Air Force Research Lab to knock out swarms of drones. And, you know, it's the military, so they have to have cool acronyms, otherwise that's just emasculating. (laughs) Right, why bother? Right. So... These types of directed energy microwave devices came on the scene in the late 1960s in the US and the Soviet Union. Pulsed power generates short electrical pulses that have very high electrical power, meaning both high voltage, up to a few megavolts, and large electrical currents, or tens of kiloamps. That's more voltage than the highest voltage long-distance power transmission lines, and about the amount of current in a lightning bolt. Oh, yikes! Yeah, yeah. Plasma physicists at the time realized that if you could generate, for example, a one megavolt electron beam with 10 kiloamp current, the result would be a beam power of 10 billion watts. For comparison, the output of today's typical microwave ovens is around (laughs) a thousand watts, a million times smaller.
0: You would hope. I mean, you wouldn't want a gigawatt in your house.
1: (laughs) Definitely not. The development of this technology led to a subset of the U.S.-Soviet arms race, a microwave power derby. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, the author Edel Shamilaglu and other American scientists gained access to Russian pulse power accelerators like the Sinus-6 that is still working in his lab. Today, research in high-power microwaves continues in the US and Russia but has exploded in China, and the author has visited labs in Russia since 1991 and labs in China since 2006, but dozens of countries now have active high-power microwave research programs. So. Although these high-power microwave sources generate very high power levels, they tend to generate repeated short pulses. So, for example, the sine of 6 produces an output pulse on the order of 10 nanoseconds. So, even when generating 1 gigawatt of output power, a 10 nanosecond pulse has an energy content of only 10 joules. To put that into perspective, the average microwave oven in 1 second generates 1 kilojoule, or 1,000 joules of energy. And this is why microwaves generated by these high-power microwave weapons don't generate noticeable amounts of heat, let alone cause people to explode like baked potatoes in microwave ovens
2: <laughs> that was a very florid image
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> high power is important in these weapons because generating very high instantaneous power yields very high instantaneous electric fields that can disrupt electronics which is why the DOD is interested in these devices but in terms of how it actually affects people the national academy's report links high power microwaves to impacts on people through the fray effect the human head ...acts as a receiving antenna for microwaves in the low (laughs) gigahertz frequency range. Pulses of microwaves in these frequencies can cause people to hear sounds, which is one of the symptoms reported by the affected U.S. personnel. Other symptoms Havana Syndrome sufferers have reported include headaches, nausea, hearing loss lightheadedness and cognitive issues and actually i'll take a pause this isn't mentioned in the article but i've done a little bit of reading into this and it's serious like some people have been permanently disabled they can't go back to work like permanent brain damage stuff like that it's really really intense Mm -hmm. and you know this is happening in people's hotel rooms like just wherever they are and it doesn't make sense as like a sonar sort of weapon which might reproduce some of the same effects So it's very interesting to me that we're finally, like, taking a look at this seriously. And as you can tell, the tech is there. Mm -hmm. There's some bleed over, too, with the idea of the psychosomatic electromagnetic sensitivity syndrome. Mm -hmm. right? And just because I think this is so similar in terms of the claims of, like, electromagnetic frequencies, blah, Mm -hmm. blah, they get lumped in. And also, I'm sure that, you know, the U.S. military and government is incentivized to make sure that people don't think that electromagnetic weapons exist. That's all My speculation, but uh. (laughs) anyways, so the report does note that electronic devices were not disrupted during the attacks, suggesting that the power levels needed for the fray effect are lower than would be required for an attack on electronics. This would be consistent with a high power microwave weapon located at some distance from the targets. Hmm. The Russians and the Chinese certainly possess the capabilities of fielding high power microwave sources like the ones that appear to have been used in Cuba and China. The truth of what actually happened to U.S. personnel in Cuba and China and why might remain a mystery, but the technology most likely involved comes from textbook physics and the military powers of the world continue to develop and deploy it.
0: Well, I guess my vacation to the embassy in Cuba is going to canceled now. That's scary. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. who wants to go work down there now, especially Mm -hmm. now that we know, like, no, they're doing this and we presumably don't know where the source is or how they're aiming it at us. The fact that it's been at least activity I've been familiar with
2: has been around embassies. It's not a huge leap to assume that this is some kind of statecraft. Is is that a gentle word to use to describe (laughs) this?
0: Yeah, no, I don't. Think they're coming for my house. It's just one of those like <laughs> any any kind of threat that you can't see and you can't hear. It just makes you feel bad. It's I, I don't yeah. know. It's it's no mm-hmm. good. Very scary. Agree.
1: Yeah. Next link. Next, next link.
0: link. All right. This next article is from CNN and it's called Northern Enclosure which I'm guessing about half our audience is not old enough to get that pun. Oh, um, that was a depressing kids? tidbit. I know. I know. There was this wildly popular show called Northern Exposure. And by the way, I looked some clips up on YouTube. It holds up pretty well. It's not it so does. bad. But my looming mortality aside, this article, <laughs> like the show, is about a remote town in Alaska called Whittier and the unique culture that has sort of sprung up around it. Hmm. So let's first just make it clear how remote this town is. Up until 15 years ago, the only way to reach Whittier was by boat or train and both only when the weather permitted. Then around 2007, things got crazy modern when Alaska converted an old World War II railway tunnel to handle cars. The tunnel is a single lane that alternates what direction you're allowed to drive through it each hour, and it closes for good at 1030 every night. So they say it's common to see people who missed the last crossing sleeping in their cars at the tunnel entrance because the nearest town is like 60 miles back in the other direction. Uh So they're just like, well, I'll hang out here. They also note that many residents have printed T-shirts that say POW or Prisoner of Whittier. (laughs) Oh, gosh. But the really crazy thing about this tiny town is that the entire thing operates out of a single monolithic building. The hospital, school, city government and nearly all of the residents live in a 14 story structure called BTI or Begich Towers Incorporated, which was originally built as a military base just after Pearl Harbor but then was sold off in the 1950s after the invention of intercontinental ballistic missiles meant we didn't strictly need anyone stationed that close to the eastern hemisphere anymore mm. so basically the town is the building that's it
2: that, wait so it's like all the residents jammed in there together like some kind of post
0: apocalyptic korean zombie premise pretty much yeah yeah they, uh, Google, they Google. know that Rush hour means the elevator is stopping on every floor. Uh, (laughs) Dropping the kids off at school just means sending them down to the basement. And uh, outside the building, Whittier gets 22 feet of snow every year. But since most people don't leave for months or sometimes even years on end, they just keep the inside heated and everyone walks around in sandals and T-shirts all the time. This is super strange. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's a weird, weird way to live. Uh, The building has about 220 residents. Most of them work in commercial fishing, which is very seasonal, or basic services for each other, or maintaining the state railroad and ferry services when they're able to run. 64-year-old Brenda Tolman, who's known as the matriarch of the building, First came to Whittier as a sign painter in 1982 and made quite a lot of money painting and repainting the government required ID numbers on the sides of the oil tankers that were so prevalent back then. These days, the price of oil went down. It's just not such a big business there anymore. So she paints little wooden fish souvenirs for tourists, which they do get sometimes, and serves as the town's only notary. So, like, if you need something notarized, she's the one and you better not get on her bad side or anybody (laughs) else's bad side. Like, (laughs) Tolman is actually one of the few people who doesn't live inside BTI anymore. There is a tiny apartment complex right next door, which was built a couple decades ago and is the only other working structure in the area. She says that for all their isolation from the rest of the world. Inside the building, it's more like a giant family, and she got tired of everybody being in her face 24-7, which is
2: why she (laughs) moved to the apartment complex. That would have been me. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
0: She notes that the mayor of the town also lives in the apartments, probably because when he lived in the main building, constituents would just show up at his door in their pajamas at all hours to complain about whatever they wanted fixed. Yep. There is technically another large building next door to BTI, but it's unoccupied. It's full of asbestos and no one has ever been willing to invest the several million dollars it would take to detoxify it and renovate it back to livable status. So it just sits there as kind of this massive eyesore. (laughs) But Tolman says, we're used to looking at it. Doesn't bother us. (laughs) (laughs) That's part of the charm. Which feels like an attitude you'd have to have there. Like you can't Mm -hmm. let anything bother you if you're living in this kind of environment. You got limited options. Yeah. The article also interviews Erica Thompson, the 38-year-old teacher of Whittier's one-room school, which, as previously mentioned, is down in the basement alongside a maze of storage cages and large freezers that rent for $15 a month. And that's, of course, where everyone stores their provisions for when the town is cut off during the winter. The nearest real grocery store is 60 miles away in Anchorage, but one couple living in Whittier run a convenience store on the first floor That's basically just random extra stuff they pick up when they go to the grocery store for themselves. (laughs) Like any convenience store, it's not cheap, both because (laughs) of the markup and because things are just more expensive in Alaska to begin with. So they note that a bag of chips, for example, at the Cozy Corner convenience store costs $9. (gasps) Wow. Yeah. During the school's lunch break, most of the kids just go back up to their various condos to eat. But Thompson prefers to pack a lunch and eat it downstairs because she likes to create at least a little separation between home and work. Mm -hmm. She admits, unfortunately, it's pretty easily shattered when she inevitably runs into her students in the laundry room or while she's (laughs) taking out the garbage. But... It can also be useful, like when she needed to spend the day cooking something big, so she just held class in her living room.
1: Mm.
0: (laughs) Thompson is also proud of an indoor hydroponic garden she started so the kids would appreciate fruits and vegetables more. She says the school acquired the equipment after the Whittier police, who also live in the condos, Busted a guy who was using it to grow pot in his own condo. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, if you think about it, it's what police in normal cities do. They Mm -hmm. live in a house in a neighborhood somewhere and they will bust you in your house if they catch you doing something wrong. It's just, in this case, there's no outdoors between your yeah. house and your house.
2: <laughs> and also, when you have such limited lifestyle options, are you really going to bust your neighbor for weed? Well, yeah. I mean,
0: how long does it take before word gets around? <laughs> like, <laughs> <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> and in some ways, this kind of concept is actually probably good practice for when we start establishing colonies on Mars, right? Because you're going to need this same dense, self-sufficient kind of living where everything is in one place Mm -hmm. and if you go outside, you die. And, you know, like maybe aspiring Mars colonists should have to spend a year living in Whittier first to prove they won't develop space madness.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think it also is kind of a nice model to consider, at least, you know, as much of the world kind of shifted this remote online work and all of our work-life boundaries are getting kind of blurred. So, Mm -hmm. you know, healthy boundaries are good. Maybe the residents of Whittier can drop us a few tips.
0: Well, and suburban life has never been the most ideal setup anyway way. Like I talk to some people and it's like, oh, yeah, I drove to the grocery store. And they're like, what do you mean you drove to the grocery store? I'm like, well, the grocery store is two miles away. Where's your grocery store? And they're like, you know, downstairs around the corner because <laughs> right. like, oh, you live in an actual urban environment. That makes mm-hmm. sense. So it's not all bad, but I think the snow outside is probably a deciding factor for me. Definitely.
1: I'm not- <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Next link. Next link.
2: link. Well, in a completely different change of topic, The Guardian is happily reporting that a Swedish firm is deploying crows to pick up cigarette butts.
1: Nice. All
0: right. Right?
2: I mean, sure.
1: Good. Are they paid?
2: (laughs) Well, in a fashion, yes. They carry out the task and they get a little food for every butt they deposit. Quote, they are wild birds taking part on a voluntary basis, says Kristin Gunther Hansen, the founder of Corvid Cleaning, the company behind the method. Just on street cleaning alone, this city spends 20 million Swedish kroner, which is a lot to spend on street cleaning, right? They're carrying out a pilot project before potentially rolling out the operation across the city. And the health of the birds is a key consideration Because of the type of waste involved. I mean, we all know that nicotine can have effects or be absorbed by bodies transdermally. Mm Mm-hmm. We don't want to poison these crows, right? (laughs) I don't know. It's a motivator. Oh, they also
0: like the nicotine that they get in cigarette
2: butts. (laughs) (laughs) This is Sweden. Sweden cares about the wildlife. Okay,
0: I care. (laughs) I want them to have the (laughs) same joy that (laughs) someone who uses nicotine does. Listen, we
2: just want to sharpen their response times, and if it creates a dependency, but they become. No, I'm not even going to argue for it.
1: I'm Uh, just saying crows are cool, but they'd be cooler if... (laughs) There (laughs) you go. No.
2: Keep crows smoke free. (laughs) Uh, Well, the crows in particular that we're looking at are named New Caledonian crows, and they are a member of the Corvid family of birds. And apparently these particular crows are as good at reasoning as a human seven-year-old, according to research. So this makes them the absolute smartest birds for the job. There is also a higher chance of them learning from each other. And at the same time, there's a lower risk of them mistakenly eating any rubbish. Mm. So they're thinking that each cigarette butt today costs around 80 or, which is, you know, a handful of Swedish change or more per cigarette butt. But if the crows pick up the cigarette butts, this could get chopped down to a third of that. And so the saving for the municipality depends on how many cigarette butts the crows pick up. Thomas Thernstrom, a waste strategist at the municipality, says we can teach crows to pick up cigarette butts, but we can't teach people not
0: to throw them on the ground. That's an interesting thought he said yeah but you know the next thing the crows are going to do is unionize and go on like, yeah.
1: we're going to become dependent
0: on them and then they're going to say no we're not picking up any more cigarette butts mm-hmm. until you give us higher quality food and you know the corvid revolt of 2022
2: why not
1: it wouldn't be the weirdest thing i've checked off my bingo card That's
2: true. right. <laughs> next link
1: next, next link, link. This article comes to us from scientificamerican.com. And it's titled Astronomers Find First Ever Rogue Black Hole Adrift in the Milky Way.
0: Oh, dear. Yeah. I mean, it's not that close to us. Like, yeah. I think of the Milky Way. I'm like, that's like next door, but it's pretty big still. We're not it, in danger, It is right? pretty
1: big. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. So these are boom times for astronomers hunting black holes. The biggest ones, supermassive black holes that can weigh billions of suns, have been found at the centers of most every galaxy, and we've Mm. even managed to image one. Meanwhile, researchers now routinely detect gravitational waves rippling through the universe from smaller merging black holes. Never before, though, have we seen a long-predicted phenomenon, an isolated black hole drifting aimlessly through space born and flung out from the collapsing core of a massive star. Mm. Until now. (laughs) Scientists have announced the first ever unambiguous discovery of a free-floating black hole, a rogue wanderer in the void some 5,000 light years from Earth. So, pretty far. Mm. Marina Rekuba from the European Southern Observatory in Germany, a co-author on the paper, says, This discovery may just be the start. Ongoing surveys and upcoming missions are expected to find dozens or even hundreds more of the dark, lonely travelers. Back in 1919, the British astronomer Arthur Stanley Eddington performed a famous experiment. Einstein's theories of special and general relativity had postulated that massive objects should cause a dent in space-time and bending nearby rays of light in a process known as gravitational lensing. Eddington proved this to be true during a total solar eclipse when the sun's glare was minimized so that background stars could be seen. Using a technique known as astrometry, He carefully noted these stars' positions before and during the eclipse, revealing a subtle change in their apparent locations in the sky due to the light being warped by our stars' considerable gravitational pull. Hmm. In the subsequent decades, scientists realized a novel use for this technique. Stars greater than about 20 times the mass of our sun should form black holes at the end of their lives. These forces can be so great, they sometimes kick the newborn black hole right out of its womb on an endless interstellar cruise. That cosmic wanderlust, plus the black hole's small sizes and inherent darkness, should make them almost impossible to see. Eddington's work, however, suggested these outcasts could be found by observing their lensing effects, typically a telltale transient brightening of any background stars the black holes flit across within our field of view. Several projects now search for these and other so-called microlensing effects, including the Optical Gravitational Lensing Experiment, or OGLE, run by the University of (laughs) Warsaw in Poland, and the Microlensing Observations in Astrophysics, MOA, survey run by researchers in New Zealand and Japan. In June 2011, these two surveys spotted something of note, a suddenly brightening star 20,000 light-years away towards the densely packed galactic bulge in the center of the Milky Way. Could this have been a microlensing effect from a rogue black hole? Astronomers raced to find out. Among them was Kailash Sahu from the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, the lead author on the archive preprint detailing the object's discovery. Using the Hubble Space Telescope, he and his colleagues zoomed in on the star within weeks of its brightening, then returned to it again and again over the next six years. They were able to confirm the star's light had been magnified, pointing to the presence of an unseen lensing object, but they found something even more important. The star's apparent position in space had shifted by a minuscule amount. Mm. The effect was 1,000 times smaller than what Eddington measured, says Sahu, and was near the limits of Hubble's capabilities. Wow. So the amount of lensing and deflection from the star then allowed Sahu and his collaborators to peg the suspected black hole's mass at just over seven solar masses. That places it smack in the middle of what we would expect for stellar-mass black holes. Sahu says it's moving at about 45 kilometers per second. That's relatively fast compared to nearby stars, the exact sort of thing one would expect if the black hole had been given an ejecting kick from a dying massive star. Sahu says it's not clear when that event would have happened, but it may be somewhere close to 100 million years ago. We can't really tell because we don't know exactly where it came from.
0: And we don't know where it's going, which is much more scary.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, at the very least, you know, 45 kilometers per second is much below the speed of light, I believe. And yes, yes, very much so. And so we're going to be long dead by the time it becomes an issue. Hopefully. Uh, Right.
0: Even if it were headed straight towards us, it wouldn't matter for any of
1: us. Yeah. That's our future, 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 future generations problem.
0: Good luck. Yeah. We'll all be dead by then. It's fine.
1: next link next link.
0: link this next article comes from upworthy and it's called in 1889 a british newspaper asked women why they were spinsters and the responses were incredible wow the audacity <laughs> who pitches a <laughs> oh i am okay i'm i'm ready i mean it was it was 1889 i mean you know to be fair but the answers are totally relatable yes. you like yes <laughs> So first off, the article notes that the word spinster actually comes from the 1300s, when women who spun yarn for a living were usually single because it was one of the very few jobs you could do without needing any money to buy expensive supplies. And, of course, back then, as in the 1800s and even to a certain degree today, you know, we use different slang. But for some people, it's still very much considered an insult, right, Mm -hmm. because it must mean you're somehow defective if you can't find a man to support you and Mm -hmm. buy you better yarn, I guess. (laughs) But so in 1889, the editor of a British weekly magazine called Titbits asked single women to write in and explain why they weren't married. And to be fair, this was also a follow up to a previous column where they asked bachelors to write in and explain why they were unmarried as well. Ah, okay. And the deal for the article was that the woman with the best response would be featured in the paper and win a prize. And I don't know what the editor was expecting, but he got (laughs) way more letters than he was prepared for. (laughs) And in the end, he ran 21 of the responses and divided the prize money between all of them, which came out to five shillings each or roughly $25 today. Hmm. So the article lists a bunch of the responses, but here's a few that are especially worth highlighting. Miss Florence Watts wrote that she was not married because I have other professions open to me in which the hours are shorter, the work more agreeable and the pay possibly higher. Mm -hmm. Miss Annie Thompson said, Because I am like the rifle volunteers, always ready, but not yet wanted. Aww. (laughs) Miss Sparrow, which may or may not be her real name given her answer, wrote, I do not care to enlarge my menagerie of pets, and I find the animal man less docile than a dog, less affectionate than a cat, and less amusing than a monkey. I mean, where is the lie? Right. (laughs) Miss Laura Bax said that matrimony is like an electric battery when you once join hands and can't let go no matter how much it hurts. Some are a little uncomfortable, like the answer from Miss E. Jones, who told the paper that... John, whom I loved, was supplanted in his office by a girl who is doing the same amount of work he did for half the salary he received. (laughs) (laughs) He could not earn sufficient to keep a home, so went abroad. Consequently, I am still a spinster. Wow.
1: Mm. Wow. Real
0: talk. (laughs) my favorite was a very badly spelled submission from a Miss Annie Newton, which I will translate here what she meant because phonetically it's all over the place. She said... Being a cook with 14 pound, 10 and a half savings in the bank, I naturally looks down on policemen, soldiers, etc. So I am waiting for an earl or a duke or something of that sort. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. You know, who can blame her? Like, it's kind of a gross attitude by today's standards. But if you're living in an era where you're effectively property, Mm -hmm. why wouldn't you hold out for a rich dude? Absolutely. That's fine. Right. (laughs) Next link.
2: Next Next link. link.
0: Okay, Wired has
2: a really intriguing read. The article is titled, North Korea Hacked Him. So he took down its internet. Whoa. Oh, (laughs) that seems like a lot of power for one man. You know, it does. So earlier in the year, there were some people who were observing North Korea's strange and tightly restricted corner of the internet, and they began to notice that the country seemed to be dealing with some major connectivity problems. On several different days, practically all of its websites, and to be fair, this notoriously isolated nation only has a few dozen, Right. and at least one of the central routers that allow access to the country's networks appeared to, at one point, be paralyzed, which effectively crippled that hermit kingdom's digital connections to the outside world. It was the work of one American man in a t-shirt, pajama (laughs) pants and slippers. And this all started just over a year ago when this independent hacker who goes by the handle PAX, and that's P4X, he was just one victim of a hacking campaign that targeted Western security researchers with the apparent aim of stealing their hacking tools and Mm. other details about software vulnerabilities. And he says he managed to prevent those hackers from swiping anything of value from him But he was super unnerved by state-sponsored hackers targeting him personally. Yeah. And PAX took matters into his own hands. Quote, it felt like the right thing to do. I want them to understand that if you come at us, it means some of your infrastructure is going to go down for a while. (laughs) (laughs) He found numerous known but unpatched vulnerabilities, finding quote-unquote ancient versions of the web server software Apache. And Mm. says he's started to examine North Korea's own national homebrew operating system, known as Red Star OS, which he described as an old and likely vulnerable version of Linux. (laughs) Yeah, Pax says he has largely automated his attacks on the North Korean (laughs) systems, periodically running scripts that enumerate which systems remain online and then launching exploits to take them down. Quote, it's pretty interesting how easy it was to actually have some effect in there. (laughs) 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 And those simple hacking methods had immediate effects. Okay, let's be clear. Records from the uptime measuring service, Pingdom, show that at several points during Pax's hacking, almost every North Korean website was down. Some of those Mm. that stayed up, like the news site Uri Minzo Kuri, are based outside the country. And Mm. Pax is quick to note that while his attacks at times disrupted all websites hosted in the country, they did not cut off North Koreans' outbound access to the rest of the Internet. So Mm. as rare as it may be for a single pseudonymous hacker to cause an Internet blackout on that scale, It's far from clear what real effects the attacks have had on the North Korean government. Only a fraction of North Koreans have access to internet-connected systems to begin with. The vast majority of residents in the country are confined to the disconnected intranet. Mm. And the dozens of sites that PAX has repeatedly taken down are largely used for propaganda and other functions aimed at an international audience anyway. Quote, Mm. I definitely wanted to affect the people as little as possible, and the government as much as possible. And now he actually wants to try hacking into North Korean systems to uh, steal information and share with experts. So it's, uh, it's escalating, y'all. But at the same time, he's hoping to recruit even more hacktivists to his cause with a dark website he launched earlier. It's called The Funk Project. And if you can't figure out what that stands for, I can't help you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I hadn't well, thought about it but yeah, now i get it
2: uh-huh. <laughs> we love our acronyms don't we uh this That's is a project right. to keep north korea honest the funk project site reads you can make a difference as one person and the goal is to perform proportional attacks and information gathering in order to keep nk from hacking the western world completely unchecked and not only are these in efforts to send a message to north koreans government but also here at home Uh, Mm. He was later contacted by the FBI, but was never offered any help to assess the damage from the North Korea hacking or even to protect himself in the future. And he didn't hear of any consequences for the hackers who targeted him or even a formal recognition from a U.S. agency. So he was feeling totally alone. And when Wired asked the FBI about its response, it responded, we rely on the public and private sector to report suspicious activity and intrusions. Sure. And we're together to, ins- yeah, it's it's all boilerplate, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. See, I wonder, because you always want to be suspicious about, like, how much do they actually know but they're not telling us? Like, do we yeah. have a whole squad of hackers who are fully aware of all the vulnerabilities in North Korea's systems. But we're like, it's like the Enigma machine. We got to play it cool because we want to continue to be able to take them down at the opportune moment. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Other hackers that were targeted by North
2: Korea. They don't like what PAX is doing. Oh, sure. Um, There's a former NSA hacker and the founder of security firm Immunity named Dave Itell And he was similarly targeted in the same campaign, but he doesn't think this is really productive. Quote, I would not want to disrupt real Western intelligence efforts that are already in place on those machines, assuming there is anything of value there. You know, (laughs) ultimately, Pax doesn't think he's done anything wrong. And the final goal that he wants to achieve with these cyber hacks, quote, regime change. No, I'm not kidding. I just want to prove a point, and I want that point to be very squarely proven before I stop.
0: Well, best of luck to him. I mean, every government in the world has been trying for some 60 years at this point. But you know what? He might do it. I, I wish him luck.
1: Yeah. I mean, if there's one type of hacker I trust, it's the sort that just chills in their underwear eating snack food and junk food. Like, that fits. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs>
0: That sort of person will totally
1: take down an entire government.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dress for the job you want, not for the job <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> want. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include how Ernest Shackleton's icy adventure was frozen in time, house prices surge in neighborhood predicted to be swallowed by the sea, and brain size found to have decreased in domesticated cats. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Weisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.